First Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul will begin by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. So Paul has been addressing numerous issues to this church. They had written him a letter. And the last couple of chapters, he's been dealing with issues, starting with the heading, Now Concerning. And he's moving on to the topic here, chapters 12 through 14, of spiritual gifts. Uh, obviously, this is a topic that there's a lot of different thoughts on. Um, we're going to go through this. I would encourage you, you know, if you want a good read, Chuck Smith's book, Living Water, is a great read on the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, a good beginning kind of access to the topic. If you want to get technical with chapters 12 through 14, you can read D.A. Carson's Showing the Spirit for people who want extra homework here. Um, but uh, by way of introduction, I, I feel like I want to say a few things before we get into this to kind of lay some groundwork, simply because when it comes to the reality of spiritual gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of different opinions in the church. And you have one side where, um, you know, what we'll call continuationists, those who believe the gifts have continued, where some of those things can be out of control, where you have the Bethels or some of the more charismatic or Pentecostal sects of the church who are all in on spiritual gifts to even an abuse of them. And then you have other sections of the church known as cessationists, which they believe the gifts have ceased now that the word of God is complete. And those would be more of the reform kind of Baptist circles where they're kind of all out on the gifts uh, and afraid of the abuses of some of those things. And they have some legitimate concerns in regard to some of those things. And then there's a lot of church that's kind of in the middle there. And really, it doesn't even matter what kind of segment you are, Catholic, Protestant. These things are looked at in various ways. Calvary Chapel really tries to take a balanced position. We want to stay as close to the Word of God as we can in relation to this. Uh, and I think it's important to just say clearly, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We believe that the Holy Spirit is still working as he was promised to work beginning at Pentecost. So that's how we're going to kind of come at that. I I want to, you know, just say I appreciate our, our position. We want to stay balanced in regard to the scripture. You know, you go too heavy one way, and some of the concerns that, say, the cessationist side would have, you know, the, the charismatic side can throw the baby out with the bathwater there. If you go too heavy the other way with all these concerns, then it's almost like the Holy Spirit isn't or can't do anything, and you throw the baby out with the bathwater there. And we're not into throwing babies at all here. Uh, in Philadelphia, actually, if people are throwing babies, we'd be catching them, unlike Aguilar. So if, if you don't know what that means, you're not a real Eagles fan. So we, we don't want to we don't want to get anywhere where the Word of God isn't leading us. So we believe the scriptures are pretty clear that the Spirit and His work are still in operation today as the Holy Spirit pleases and wills those gifts work. I am just going to lay this out kind of uh, simply from the Word of God why we believe that is and that it's improper to try to limit the Holy Spirit's work today. John 14, 16 through 18, Jesus would say this, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Jesus gave a clear statement about the Holy Spirit coming and being his promise. Then when he was resurrected, right before he ascended, in Acts chapter 1, he says to his disciples, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So Jesus says, hey, that promise I told you, it's about to happen. Then in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, Peter says this, filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, this which you now see and hear. And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So what we see in the scripture is that the promise of the Holy Spirit is the unique promise of our day and age. We live in a unique time in church history where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his followers, everyone. In the Old Testament, unique individuals had the Holy Spirit on prepayment, per se, to do special things like a David or a Moses. But it wasn't poured out on all God's people that way. You and I had this unique promise where God said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. Jesus Christ, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and I will be with you that way. The promise came at Pentecost, and Peter said, it's to you, to your children, and as many as are afar off. And that has nowhere been limited in all of Scripture, nor will it be until the Lord returns. And it's not the promise of spiritual gifts. I think this is important. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit, and spiritual gifts are one of the things that come with the Holy Spirit. Does it make sense? Sometimes we overemphasize these things as if spiritual gifts are the only things that the Holy Spirit is working. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. The Holy Spirit is teaching us about adoption as we look through Romans, is working regeneration in lives, gives us more than gifts, but graces, love, peace, joy. The Holy Spirit is doing a lot of things on the face of the earth. Spiritual gifts is one of the things the Holy Spirit is working. And to say that one of those things will be limited theologically opens a pretty dangerous door, too, to say, well, what about the other ones? We can't limit the promise of Jesus Christ because of some abuses in the church. And those abuses can be legitimate. But nowhere what Jesus said and what Peter picks up is anywhere in Scripture limited. So I'll just say, we're the good, godly people on the sensationist side there, get their concerns from, how does that kind of happen? And I think there's two places. The first is bad experience, and then the second is no experience. Uh, abuses and questions, I guess you could say. Bad experience and abuses in terms of, there's too many in the name. Things done in the name of the Holy Spirit that aren't the Holy Spirit. All the crazy stuff that we see and you can hear of uh, all through church history. There's plenty of it. I don't think you have to work too hard to find it. Uh, I'm sure you could name many of these people. But the reality is this whole section here, 12 through 14, Paul at no point says that these spiritual gifts are real. What he does is he has to correct how the people are engaging with them, thinking about them, and practicing them. There is abuse of spiritual gifts going on in the church of Corinth, but Paul does not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Paul steps in to correct the use of spiritual gifts. And it's important for us that, yes, we can recognize, man, there are segments of the church that in the name of the Holy Spirit are doing things that are obviously not the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that we then say, well, this isn't for anybody, because we're concerned about what some of those practices are. They're still under the authority of God's word. And I understand the fears of some individuals, but the reality is we should fear more not having everything that the Lord has for us. In all honesty, I wish Christians feared sin more than the Holy Spirit, but things don't work out like that because 
Satan's smart and humanity's twisted. So what we're going to see here is, I think it's important in context to see, Paul's correcting abuses of spiritual gifts in the church. He says, I don't want you guys to be ignorant about these things. You need to be instructed in what spiritual gifts are and how they look in the church. So we understand people can argue from bad experience, but that's not a biblical argument. Does that make sense? There's, that doesn't mean a scripture is saying the gifts are limited. It just means we're concerned about abuses, which is okay. But we can't then get rid of the work of the Spirit. The second thing I'll say is, again, and I think this is genuine. Some people, because they don't experience this or they have questions about it, they begin to kind of theologically reason their way through it. John Calvin was one of the more famous people who started this, not seeing the same types of miraculous gifts began to argue that there was a reason theologically why then, which is how his mind certainly worked. And a lot of people just come to the question, well, why don't we see these things operating in the church today like they operated in the book of Acts? Which is a great question, but again, it's not a biblical argument. It's a great question. And I believe there are some answers, and I'll give you a couple, but I think it's important to recognize None of those questions take away the clear statements that I read from Jesus Christ and Peter. So the scripture is always where the authority is. We, we have to gauge our experience through what the scriptures say. In terms of just why we don't see it the same, again, I'm going to give you three reasons. Then we're going to jump into uh, the text here again. The first I'll just say is simply this. The early church was centralized. The worldwide church that we live in now is decentralized. What I mean by that is there was literally a time when all the apostles were in one city. And the gospel hadn't gone anywhere. And all the work of God was happening in one place. And then as the word of God and the work of God spread all over the world, you heard less of what was happening but that didn't mean that God was doing less on the face of the earth. The promise of particularly the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit was always a frontline type of promise. And what I mean by that is this. Mark 16, 19 and 20 say, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Where were the signs? On the front line where the gospel was being preached. That's where the signs were. And as it went out all over the world, that's where the signs continued. And you know where they still continue? You know where you still hear a lot of stories about miraculous things happening on the face of the earth? Domestic and foreign front line work of the gospel. Missions all over the world, places where the gospel isn't being heard, you still hear this promise of accompanying signs happening. We see it even in the book of Acts. Miraculous things happen in Jerusalem. And as the church is established and people go out, you don't hear those miracles continually happening in the church of Jerusalem or in some of the other cities that Paul established churches. Those, those things had a particular purpose. And first and foremost, they are a frontline promise, and we still hear and see the miraculous happening, particularly in that arena, which is just what God said. The second thing I'll say is because certainly there is a lack of faith and fidelity to God. James says, you, do, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, in the book of Acts, there was literally people who didn't know anything about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the apostles show up places and they're like, have you heard anything about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, we didn't even, what's that? <laughs> and they pray and they receive the Spirit. Then you begin to see some miraculous things happening. Unfortunately, there's large sections of the church that know very little about the Holy Spirit and expect very little from the Holy Spirit. And you know what often happens? They receive very little from the Holy Spirit. You have not because you asked not. There's very little faith going on. The, when you were one of these, if I could put it in context, early believers that you saw resurrected Jesus Christ, and then that resurrected Jesus Christ said to you, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then a couple days later, 
Pentecost, tongues of fire over your head, supernatural work, you probably believe that you have the Holy Spirit at that point. And you would also believe other people are supposed to receive the Holy Spirit, and you would expect what Jesus said to happen through the Holy Spirit to happen. But in very simple terms, most of the church does not expect that to happen. And to be honest, very often we don't expect any work of the Holy Spirit in our daily life. And part of the reason I think that we don't see more of these types of things is because we literally don't even ask. Or large portions of the church don't even know that the promise of the Holy Spirit is there for them in a unique way. The last thing I'll just say is because we misunderstand the operation and purpose of the Holy Spirit in spiritual gifts. We have false expectations uh, in a lot of different ways, and I think a lot of that will be addressed as we kind of go through this. Like People have ideas of what healing is supposed to look like as if you have a gift of healing and you could just go do that wherever and whenever you want. Even the apostles didn't do that. Like Paul didn't have an idea. You know what, God? If I sweat in these rags and then throw them on people and they get healed, that'll be cool. Can we do it like that? That he, God made those things happen. That wasn't him making it up because he had a gift. He couldn't even heal Timothy of his stomach problem. He couldn't heal himself of the things that were going on with him. There, it, it, we have some of these false expectations out there of how these gifts operated. And so people wonder, how come they're not operating like that? Well, they never operated like that. That's part of the reason that people some, sometimes have issues thinking about these things. So in, in saying all of that, I think it's just important to lay that groundwork, right? We believe the promise of the Holy Spirit is there for us today like it was there for them. And the Holy Spirit will still do all the things he said that he would do in his own way. So when Paul says, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. He's getting into the particulars here for them. The word there for spiritual gifts, you'll notice gifts is in italics, which means it's not actually there in the Greek. The Greek word can actually refer to spiritual people or things based on the context. Maybe you could say the the best translation would, would be, okay, now concerning matters of the spirit or spiritualities. Paul's saying, all right, we got some things to talk about, some matters of the spirit that we have to talk about now that you guys wrote to me about. And very interestingly, he, he starts in a way that you would not expect. Verse 2, he says, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So before he gets into any of these kind of church practice things, what Paul does is he puts their present experience in contrast with their past experience. He does this in Ephesians 2 as well. He talks about them being aliens out of the commonwealth of Israel. What, what he says is, hey, look, Let's just remember where you guys are coming from. You were all heathens (laughs) worshiping dumb idols, led astray by these things. Because this is why you need instruction in regard to spiritualities. You don't have a history in godliness and the work of the spirit. Your history is in pagan rituals and false worship. Let's remember where we're coming from here. God has changed you and this is not your normal experience. This is not, he says as well, to figure out whether these people are Christian or not. He doesn't say no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse because there's a lot of people in the church cursing God. That's not what's happening here. He's laying out literally how you can tell anybody has the Holy Spirit at all. Let's, let's just start from the ground up. You were an unsaved pagan person worshiping false gods. Now you're born again and you're made new. And you say something totally different about Jesus here. Somebody who has the Holy Spirit is going to speak like this. That's the idea. Romans 8, 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if I have the spirit, I'm going to say Jesus is Lord. The word there in the Greek curious means deity in full authority. That's what I will through the spirit say about Jesus. Of course, somebody can fake that. But the idea is I can't truly say that except through a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Something else was Lord in my life before and led me astray. A person who has the Holy Spirit can now literally claim Jesus is Lord and will. They will not curse him. The person who does not have the Holy Spirit will not say that about God. Uh, there, are, there are people all over the world and they will say all types of things about Jesus. They like to talk about Jesus. They say things that they think Jesus would say. Jesus is all about love. Jesus is about forgiveness. Jesus, But you will notice something they don't often say. Jesus is Lord and King. They don't want to say stuff like that. People would like Jesus to be a part of their life, to help their life, to even come in and fix up my life. But they don't want Jesus to be Lord of their life or their life to be for Jesus. I would like Jesus to be an addendum to what I'm doing. But the minute he's Lord, now I'm for him. He's not for me. There's a, there's a total change. And when we're saved and we receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord. And I can say that clearly. And before anybody needs to talk about any type of spiritual gifts, if Jesus can't be the Lord of my life, we don't need to worry about speaking in tongues. Right? That's what Paul's laying out here. If I can't as a Christian, if I, can, if I can't sit in front of my wife and my children and my co-workers and my friends and say, Jesus is the Lord of every area of my life without them looking at me and laughing then I don't need to worry about spiritual gifts yet. That should be true, 100%, for all of us. We should be able to claim him as Lord, and that should be a true statement worked in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, before we have any of these other conversations, let's talk about this. Let's remember where you were, and let's remember now where he brought you. And all the rest of this falls under that heading and category. He's the Lord. And that's what happens through the Holy Spirit. Now, as Lord, he does this work of, holy, of spiritual gifts in us. So, verse 4, Paul will say there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries or differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. That word diversities there, differences, whatever your Bible says, it's the same Greek word in all of those verses there, four, five, and six. Actually, the only time they're used in the scripture, a different type of the word is used in verse 11, just in this context. But the, the emphasis Paul wants to lay out here as he gets into spiritual gifts is he wants to show the diversity and unity that's in God spills down into his people and in the church. Because one of the main problems in this church is their overemphasis of the gift of tongues. And Paul wants to put everything back into perspective here through how God works and through how the body of Christ works. They were overemphasizing a particular gift and its usage Paul wants to get them back and put things in perspective here. And what he says is, there's a big diversities of gifts. The word for gifts there in verse 4 is charisma, where we get charismatics from. Uh, it's often related to spiritual gifts in the Bible, but it's not always spiritual gifts. It really is related to any gift that comes through the grace of God. Romans 6.23 that talks about the gift of salvation that we have. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, that's, that's salvation. Romans 5 is used in the same way. So in some ways, whether you believe it or not, we're all charismatics. Right? If you say you're saved, you're charismatic because you received the charisma, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So 
The word is not as technical, but it's often used in terms of spiritual gifts as it is here. But the idea is, again, anything received from the spirit. So diversities of gifts from the same spirit, diversities of ministries, types of service from the same Lord, diversities of activities or energies from the same God who works all in all. So we see God is behind all of them. You'll notice certainly the spirit in verse four, the Lord in verse five, God in verse six. The language reflects the Trinity here. I don't think Paul's trying to be exclusive, just fitting. Uh, when I say exclusive, I, I mean, he doesn't, he's not trying to say the spirit only does this role. The spirit only gives gifts. The Lord only gives ministries. God only, that, that's not what he's doing. He's pointing out God's doing a whole lot of different things, but he's the one behind it all. He's the one working it all. The Holy Spirit is walking, working across the church and the world in incredibly diverse ways, doing more than we could imagine. The minute you walk out and walk on just a plot of grass, there is more life happening in that ground than you could really imagine. We don't think about it, but God always has stuff going on. And so much of it is happening outside of our sight. And just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And Paul's saying God's doing a whole lot of different things. He's not just trying to get everybody to speak in tongues in the world, latently. Paul's saying that to them. There's a lot of different things that the Lord is doing, but he's the one directing it all. It might be incredibly diverse, but it's a symphony all guided with one heart, one will, and one hand behind it all. And it's the Lord's. So we can't get too specified about how spiritual gifts are to work and are not to work because God made a huge variety on purpose. So sometimes when people begin to talk about spiritual gifts, they want to get very specified about it. But whatever, even the gifts we know, say the gift of evangelism or pastor teacher or giving, hospitality, all those gifts can be true gifts. But there's such a variety of how they work in operation, how that gift can work in one person and in another person. Everybody's not supposed to be Billy Graham and they're not. But God is the one working that gift all over the world right now. It's his heart to see lost people saved. And he spills that out through his body in particular individuals in particular ways. And it works with all different types of energies. And what Paul is saying is the point is I need to see the Lord behind all those things. You just think of all the different people in the Bible. So many different temperaments, personalities, men, women, different ages, different times. Some of them live in hundreds of years. Some of them live in short lives. Kings, priests, prophets, normal folk, just godly men and women. How that, it all worked out through the ages. We could never direct or order all those things. But Paul's saying, God's doing so much. And it works in a lot of different ways. It's all God-given, it's all God-glorifying, but there's an individuality to spiritual gifts. But it's still, notice he says at the end of verse six, the same God who works all in all. That's what we're supposed to see. When he gives spiritual gifts, they are unique. He makes you an individual. Seven colors in the rainbow, you could combine them to make all different types, countless, thousands, shades, or different colors. And God can do that with colors in the world. Then he takes a human being, body, mind, and soul, all different types of mental, physical, and spiritual temperaments and strengths, and he adds to that the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what comes out? A whole lot of different things. Because he made you unique. And his infinite energy, will, gift, and favor gets reflected through the church. In every day and age, 
And there's a beauty to the individuality of it. F.W. Borm in his book, The Passing of John Broadbank, says this, If I possess wealth, I possess it in common with all the wealthy. If I possess strength, I possess it in common with all the strong. But if I possess individuality, and in possessing individuality, I possess something that is absolutely unique. When God makes a man, he breaks the mold. There are no duplicates, and it is in our folly that we attempt to create them. Mimics are always monstrosities. Every single individual here has a unique spark of divine life, of character, of beauty, of favor that distinguishes you from every other person that ever was or ever will be. And God did that on purpose. He did it with snowflakes, and they're not made in his image and likeness. And he does it with humanity, and that particular work of the Holy Spirit in an individual life, and even in groups of individuals, becomes something that pleases God. It gives a unique odor, a unique flavor, a unique type of life. And it should be something that attracts us as well. And I think it does on a very practical, you know, godly men and women. I have the blessing of know, knowing a ton of godly men and women in this church. And it is a beautiful thing to see them living their life for the Lord in all their different ways. God does that on purpose. And Paul wants them to see, look, before we talk about spiritual gifts, let's understand where they're coming from and who this person is. And we can't get too specified about all these things. The God Almighty is working in so many diverse ways, doing unique things all over the face of the earth through his Holy Spirit, through unique individuals. Sin does the opposite. Sin does the, what, what it does to human beings, it just turns them all into the same type of animal, zombie, or monster. You get enslaved by sex, or drugs, or alcohol, or money, or pride, and you turn into the same thing. I surrender my life to the Holy Spirit, and I become truly unique. What I was made to be not only as an individual, but in God's plan and in the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants them to see this, to recognize it. And in verse 7, he's going to tell us three really important things about these spiritual gifts. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Notice that. First thing he says is the spirit who lives in each of us shows himself in different ways through each person. And that should be manifest in our lives. The manifestation of the spirit is given to each one. Manifestation is a word that we don't really use. It simply means the disclosure, showing something, something revealed. So you might not know what your spiritual gifts are, right? People want to know what it is. I want to know what it looks like. We want to have a nice kind of box for that. But the real question is, is there any evident work of the Holy Spirit in my life? Is there anything happening in my life that is supernatural? It doesn't have to be huge. We, we should, as Christians, have literally the, the experience of the supernatural in our lives. That was a supernatural setup, God. That was a supernatural conversation. God, you gave me the things to say. You opened that door. I felt like you wanted me to call that person, and I called them, and this happened. There should be an evident work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, particularly in relation to the body of Christ. It may be humble. That's totally fine. But it should be evident that it's supernatural and not natural. Unfortunately, when we don't look for this, all we have left are the natural things of men. And a lot of people miss out on what God's doing because they don't ask God for the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, which he promised them. Instead, they turn to something else. And it can be as simple as you're a mom that wants to witness 
to one of your own kids and you're not having the effect that you would like to have, you, you have two options, right? As a Christian, you could say, all right, Lord, I need the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit. You promised your Holy Spirit so that I could be a witness in the world that I live in. Or you could go to some other man-made method. Try to get somebody else to do the work. And as Christians, we should be expecting the manifestation of the Spirit in our lives. I should expect God to work in my life, to do something supernatural. Again, Jesus walked in Peter's house. He raised up his mother-in-law from a fever, but nobody else saw that. Didn't make the news. Wasn't, wasn't some huge thing, right? Jesus is doing a miracle in a home to help somebody who had a fever. That's a supernatural work, though. Sitting down at a well when a lady walks by and has a conversation that's totally supernatural. What about our lives? Is there a manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Does God work in our lives in a particular way? One of the ways we find our gifts is the thing that he opens up for us, we do, and he blesses it. Do we see that at all? If not, we should ask. Because the manifestation of the Spirit is given first, then he says, to each one. That's the second point. There is no opting out of this course. You might say, that sounds nice for you. I don't know about me. Well, each one, you're in. You don't get to not be a part of this. Everyone is to be making some contribution to the whole. God has designed it that way. It's not a matter of personal importance. It's a matter of purpose importance. It does not matter on my end what necessarily I'm doing. What matters is I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm pitching into the only everlasting thing happening on the face of the earth. And God lets me do it out of his grace and his goodness. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone. The Holy Spirit wants to work something in your life. In your life. And you should want that. Because it'll only be good. And third, that work of the Holy Spirit, that manifestation for each one is given, notice, for the profit of all. I wasn't born or born again for myself. You are supposed to make a difference in other people's lives, particularly the church, as the context is here. Other believers that God puts you around. I will never find my spiritual gifts or the manifestation of the Spirit in my life properly if I'm living for myself, thinking about myself, or trying to glorify myself. Because my spiritual gifts are not meant for any of those purposes. And there are people that can go through their lives wondering, where's my place? Because they're living for themselves, thinking about themselves, and trying to glorify themselves. You're not going to find it like that. You find it by loving God and loving other people, especially those of the household of God. Because the gifts are meant to profit all others. Peter would say, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'm supposed to minister my gift to other people. Uh, I would never have found out I was supposed to be a pastor if I was just sitting in a room preaching myself sermons. <laughs> right? If I wasn't hanging out with other people. I found my spiritual gifts literally just going to church. And I know half the guys on staff could say that just trying to love God and love other people. And I found places where I was not gifted, hence I'm not serving in children's ministry. <laughs> and then there were other places where the Spirit actually worked and things happened. So I, I, you can't find that by yourself. And it's foolishness to try to find my place in God's work in relation to myself. I'm called to live my life in relation to God first and others second. Maybe some of you have done, they have those dumb like spiritual gift questionnaires where you fill out all the things you like and it's supposed to tell you what your spiritual gifts are. Your spiritual gifts aren't for you. 
really the best spiritual gift questionnaire would be hand it out to all your friends and see what they say about you. Because it's supposed to be about other people, not you. And the, the gifts God gives are for the blessing of others, the building up of the body of Christ. If I want to know, and I should, because God wants you to be a part of the manifestation of his spirit in this world because you are a unique part of that that no one else can be. And your contribution is important because you serve him and he's the king of kings. But if you want to find that, say, all right, Lord, let me start loving you and loving other people. Whoever you put me around, whatever door you open for me. Now, part of his description here in verse 8 is going to be some of what that looks like. At what is the spirit manifesting as? Verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. So here again, I think it's important. Paul is making the point of diversity and unity in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. His point is not to lay out an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts. That would be the opposite of the point he's making. He's saying there's a whole bunch of things that God is doing. And he's saying some of it looks like this. You guys know that. Here's some of the things that the Holy Spirit works among you guys. If you want to look, there's various lists in the Bible. Romans 12 has a list of spiritual gifts, 4 through 8. Here again in verses 28 through 30 in 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. They'll be on the, the recording here if you want them. And all those lists are meant to be descriptive, not exhaustive. Like God is doing even more than just those things. But they're descriptive of the things that God is doing and what the Holy Spirit works. But again, even if I throw one of them out, like the word of wisdom, the point is God is working that with various gifts and energies and services and administrations. There's, there's a whole lot of ways that works out. Just like as we talked about the gift of evangelism. So I don't think any of these gifts, particularly in their operations, are what he's trying to get across, per se, or even the order they're in. There are a lot of commentators that try to point out certain things in relation to the order. Um, they try to figure out a formula, but really they seem to break down most of the times. Uh, what you can take from the list is tongues is typically mentioned last, which is notable, not because I think of the lack of importance, but because of the fact, again, that the, Corinthian, the Corinthians have been overemphasizing tongues in their service, and Paul wants to kind of get it through to them that that's not the most important thing that they should be doing. He's showing the diversity of God's gifts and yet how they all work together for God's purpose. And everybody should be happy finding their place in that. So word of wisdom and word of knowledge. Word of wisdom, no doubt wisdom has to be in relation to what Paul's already said about spiritual wisdom earlier in the book where he talks about it being not worldly or the philosophies of the world, but being spiritual from God and relating to the work of God and the cross. So I think in this we see a spiritual perception and conclusions that come from spiritual perception. That's what the word of wisdom would be. The word of knowledge seems likely to be unknown information, information maybe even relating to teaching giving them things, you say maybe even Christian authors have fit through this through the ages, right? There's a reason that certain books have lasted for hundreds of years. Athanasius's On the Incarnation, Augustine's Confessions. You think of some of the works that have been given. God gave those individuals knowledge, and they've been a blessing to his church for years. Faith is obviously not saving faith. We're all supposed to have faith, but faith to live and serve God in a unique way. Hebrews chapter 11, how did faith have to work out for those individuals? So different in all their lives. You can think of a George Mueller and his orphanages. We can think of a more recent Paul Steggy coming here and just sharing, never asking for money. The 
the step of faith to live and serve God through suffering or hardship or in the face of difficulty. Certainly David and Goliath comes to mind, right? There's a a gift of faith that God gives that becomes an encouragement to other believers when they see it and helps accomplish God's purposes in unique ways in the world. Healings, uh, this is certainly a controversial one. Notice it says the gift of healings. It's in the plural through the whole chapter, even 28 and 29, the same time. Paul mentions it twice and both times. It's the gift, the gifts of healings. It's not the gift of healing. As we talked about earlier, there's an idea that God gives a person the gift of healing and then they have this power that they can walk around and knock you down with their sport jacket with and do it at their will. That's not how the gifts ever worked. Actually, nobody in the Bible did anything like that. The person in the Old Testament who did the most miracles was Elisha, and he couldn't just do them whenever he wanted. Jesus didn't just do miracles at any moment. He said, I only do the work that my father tells me to do. Sometimes he walked up and healed one person. Sometimes he healed everybody. It was particular gifts. And Paul the apostle and Peter, they didn't just heal everybody wherever they could, whenever they could. God did those works. They didn't walk into a city saying, I'm healing somebody today. That's not how it worked. Paul got shipwrecked on Malta. When God started healing people, it was a gift. This is what God's doing right now through the Holy Spirit. And and what the Holy Spirit does is he gives gifts of healing as he sees fit. And he still does that today. And we've seen it here in various ways. Miracles has the idea of supernatural powers and acts. Healing is a miracle, but you know, you can think walking on water, feeding the 5,000, Philip being just taken from one place and appearing in another place. You think of Paul, Peter, Paul, certainly raising the dead. There's miraculous things, literally supernatural power happening in the natural world. Those types of miracles. Prophecy, both insight and foresight. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Uh, Brian and I are going to do a little um, study plus on this as well. The idea is sometimes we only think of prophecy as saying something in the future, No, prophets gave a whole bunch of messages, and they weren't all doom and gloom. Sometimes they were very positive. Sometimes they were encouraging. Sometimes they talked about future events. Sometimes they talked about something happening right now that you better listen to. It was the word or the the warning for your day. It was just God's message that he wanted to get across, and prophecy was a part of that. Discerning of spirits... I believe this is purposely connected to prophecy, like interpretation of tongues follows the gift of tongues, because we know the Bible tells us there was already many false prophets in the world at that time. It's hard to imagine, but there was already a ton of people claiming things that weren't true about Jesus Christ and the apostles and spiritual things already in biblical days. And the apostles had to do a lot of uh, dealing with those issues, and the early church had to deal with those issues. Irenaeus um, talks about hearing, I believe it was Polycarp, just saying like, oh God, why did you reserve me for these times? <laughs> he was like second generation, you know, and he was already tired of having to deal with stuff in the world that they lived in. It's not changed. And people need discernment to be able to tell, you know what, this is from God's spirit and this is not from God's spirit. There's already plenty of passages about it. Chapter 14, verse 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, 1 John 4, 1. Man, I wish the church had more discernment today. Discerning of spirits. There's a lot of people out there who can't discern the people that are there just trying to rip them off or not preaching the actual gospel. And it's sad that people get taken advantage of. Discerning of spirits is necessary. You know, sometimes it's necessary to speak into a friend's life and say, like, yo, listen, this is weird stuff. You need to watch out for that. God gives us that insight. It's a help to the church. Tongues, 
We'll get more into this later. The gift of tongues was promised in Mark 16, 7. It happened in Pentecost, Acts 2, 4. It continued through with the Gentiles in the church, Acts 10, 6, 19, 6. It manifested the work of the Spirit in a unique way. The promise of Christ to his disciples, they needed that. The gospel going to the Gentiles and the gift of the Holy Spirit going to the Gentiles, it was important. It also built up publicity for the word of God, the Old Testament. Peter said, this is what Joel said was going to happen, guys. As well as what the apostles were teaching. And it built up individual believers. So there's purposes for the gift of tongues, which Paul is going to talk about later. And then he says, as well as that, the interpretation of tongues, which is that. The speaker doesn't know what they're saying, as don't most of the listeners. So the interpretation is needed if the Holy Spirit wants to use that gift to minister to listeners. So Paul lays out this group of these spiritual gifts. But again, it's to show that God is working in a whole bunch of ways. He's not trying to make everybody have one gift or work in a particular way. He's working through individuals created in his image and likeness, filled with his Holy Spirit in unique ways whole bunch of unique ways. And he'll finish up saying this, but bringing it back to the purpose, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Here again, like verse seven, Paul gives us three things. First, the Holy Spirit is the one working behind all spiritual gifts. That seems like a simple statement, but it's not because what that means is any working of the Holy Spirit in spiritual gifts will always be in concordance with one another. It means the Holy Spirit's inspiration of spiritual gifts will never be in conflict. You hear people say crazy stuff like this, like, you know, their spiritual gifts are in conflict or something. Like, they're getting in the way of my spiritual gifts. Anybody who's talking like that, rest assured, they're not in the Spirit, they're in the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit isn't fighting with himself. He's God. He's got the whole thing worked out. So the gifts that he gives, they all work together for the profit of all, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the minute there's some type of contention or conflicting, that's not from him. What he's doing is the only real thing happening, and he's the one who's working all those things. And He's distributing to each one individually. He is the distributor. The Holy Spirit gives gifts independent of all human authority. Human beings, the church, we can't give gifts to people. We can acknowledge the work of, a, of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, but we cannot give that to them. They cannot learn it on their own. It can't be imparted to them through a school or a seminary. Only the Holy Spirit can give gifts. Him and him alone. He's the one who distributes. I think it's important, and the reason I think this is important, again, it seems like a simple point, but what it means is if the Holy Spirit has distributed a gift to an individual, no one can stop the living out of the life of God in that individual. Does that make sense? So what I mean is, if the Holy Spirit wanted Moses to be Moses, nobody could stop Moses from being Moses. Nobody could stop Paul from being... It didn't matter if all the church bodies in the world said, we do not give you ordination. So what? Nobody could stop Peter from being Peter. The gift of the Holy Spirit is worked through the Holy Spirit and distributed by him to whom he wills. Like God made Pastor Joe a pastor. Amen. So that was going to be evident one way or another. Yeah, amen to that too. I agree with that. <laughs> amen for that in my life. That, that, that is going to be evident no matter what. Here, here's why that's important. Number one, that should be an encouragement, but also number two, that becomes a challenge because there are some people who say, well, this person, they're not allowing me or this church won't allow me to exercise my gifts. That's like saying they won't allow God to be God. If it's a supernatural gift, then it's supernatural. It doesn't need any natural help. 
So if it's a true gift of the Holy Spirit, nobody can stop it from operating in his power. So the challenge becomes if, if we're like, well, they're the reason my gift is buried. No, you're the reason your gift is buried. So there's only, there's only two options. <laughs> Either the Holy Spirit is doing what he does or we're doing what we do. There's not a middle ground there. Like people are stopping this. The soldiers tried to make Elijah do something and it didn't work out well for them. Fire came down from heaven and burned them up, right? Like the people who were, who were being led by God, you couldn't stop them being led by God. So the reality is if God has a gift for your life, which he does, and he wants to work it in your life, which he does, and he distributes it to you, which he does, he'll make it happen. I don't have to fight for anything. And I don't need the acknowledgement of any other human being per se. Although the church that's led by God and that's being built up through your gifts should acknowledge that. They should see the blessing of that gift. And there's a reality where the authority of God is behind these things and needs to be acknowledged. A.W. Tozer in his book, We Travel in a Pointed Way, says this. To each of us, God has issued a certain store as it has pleased him. To one more, to another less. And since God owes us nothing, anything he gives to us may be put down to his unearned generosity. Uh, the man with a smaller store does not dare complain against God for having given him less than his neighbor received. God's gifts are not debts which he pays us, but gratuities bestowed out of pure mercy. One thing taught in the Holy Scriptures is that while God gives his gifts freely, he will require a strict accounting of them at the end of the road. Each man is personally responsible for his store, be it large or small, and will be required to explain his use of it before the judgment seat of Christ. He distributes. You're like, I don't like this plan. Take it up with him. <laughs> That's how it goes. And if God distributes, it is both an encouragement and it is also an exhortation to take it seriously. Third, the last thing it tells us is he does this to each one individually as he wills. These gifts come at his will, not mine. Now, a man can decide to be a teacher or a plumber or a nurse or accountant. You can decide to do something in the natural. You could work hard at that, but these gifts are supernatural and they must be asked for. We can ask, he says, but in the end, he's the one who wills and he's the one who distributes. So he encourages us to ask, but I can't teach somebody to do this or make somebody do this or demand somebody do anything. He and he alone, God at his own pleasure does this in his own will. And so he's the one that we talk to and relate to. This takes all the reality out of our hands and puts it back in God's hands, which is a good thing. Gordon Fee in his commentary says this verse is the Pauline version of John 3, 8. The idea being the spirit's going to work where he wills. We don't always see it, but we see its effects. Right? The, the, the encouragement there is however wrong any human being might get this deal with spiritual gifts, guess what's going to happen? What the Holy Spirit wants to happen anyway. That's what's going to happen. Because he does this as he wills. And I think it's a testament through church history to see, again, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, in just about every denomination, there is a segment that sees the work of the Holy Spirit as true and real and necessary. And the Holy Spirit has shown favor to work in various ways. So right off the bat, I think for us, we're going to look at this more in the coming weeks. But the question is simply, number one, let's start here. Jesus, are you Lord of my life? Like really Lord of my life? Can I look at the people who actually know me and say that in all honesty? And if I can't, I should repent and start there. Because then the next thing I can do is, as Lord of my life, I can ask for your portion of manifestation in my life. I 
if you're my Lord, I want that to be evident. And I want it to be evident in my love to you and to the people around me. So open up doors for that to happen. And then you be faithful to what he puts in front of you. Whatever he wills and so pleases to make evident, you be faithful with that. Let's stand. Let's pray. Uh, I would encourage you as well. Pastors will be down here afterwards. If you just want a pastor to pray with you, you'd be filled with the Spirit, and God will work in your life and make himself manifest. Come down afterwards. Lord, I do just pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would be real in our lives, that we would be salt and light where you place us, that we would be who you made us to be in your image and in your likeness, that your good will and your good pleasure would work out through our lives, however you best see fit. Lord, we don't need to prescribe to you. You already have the plan. You know what's best for us. You know what's best for the day and age in which we live. We just want to surrender ourselves to you. And I do pray, Lord, for myself, for those here that you would work in our body and that every joint and ligament would supply the health that you wanted to supply so that we can be mature in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.